My mother plays the accordion quite well, actually, and as children, our family would often sing a rollicking version of the 1866 hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Are you familiar with that song? Uh, As a child, I think I learned the lyrics by rote, uh, but I never realized how profound they were until after the Lord saved me at 21 when I revisited the song. They're wonderful. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary, helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption. God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Lord willing, over the next three weeks of joint services, I'll be preaching through John's account of our Lord's betrayal, his arrest, his two trials, one before the Jewish religious authorities, the other before Pontius Pilate, and his crucifixion. But I'll be doing so having already preached 18 sermons in John. New City is coming to the tail end of our sermon series in the fourth gospel. And every one of those 18 sermons had a a trajectory of fulfillment in that old, old story. That wonderful redemption. God's remedy for sin. A remedy... God accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection, which means, on a certain level, uh, we won't be hearing anything new today. We'll be hearing that old, old story one more time, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, who loved and lived and died a substitutionary death for sinners, the just for the unjust, that he might reconcile us to God. And we may have a PhD in theology, but as the hymn rightly notes, we need to hear this story preached simply as to a little child because we're so prone to forget God's only remedy for sin. The dew of morning has passed away at noon. But if we're to truly appreciate this portion of God's Word, then first we need to understand three things. They're listed at the top of your handout, A, B, C. And I'm going to go over these points quickly. This is all by way of introduction, and then we'll be set up not only for this sermon, but then for the two to come. Here's what we need to know. The events recorded in John 18 to 19 are historical and particular. They're written so that we may believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they fulfill Old Testament scripture and thus fall within God's sovereign control. So, first, these events are historical. By that I mean the gospel isn't some timeless myth that spans the ages divorced from real human history. If we could send a news team back to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, their cameras and their microphones would capture Jesus' arrest, trials, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the Apostle John, he faithfully recounts those historical events, even down to the words on the mocking sign posted above our Savior's cross. 
The events described in chapters 18 and 19 are historical, but they're also, they're very particular. By that I mean the eternal Son, one with the Father, took on Jewish flesh. And he lived and died in a particular geographical place, Israel, and in a particular period of time, the early first century. Jesus did not also appear to the North American natives or the imperial court of the Han Dynasty in China or to the tribesmen of New Guinea. Jesus himself said in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Which means our Lord's words and deeds were witnessed not by billions of people live on CNN, but by mere thousands, mostly Israelites. The scope of Jesus' revelation was limited. It was particular. Moreover, point B, John wrote his gospel with a distinct purpose. This is very important. Brothers and sisters, this is no mere, mere historical record. John's not saying, here's some raw data I collected. I want you to turn with me, please, to John chapter 20. The evangelist writes this in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there we have it. What did the apostle what the apostle did select for inclusion in his gospel is for the purpose of eliciting our faith, our trust, our belief in Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of God. That's John's aim in writing. Jesus, he is the long-expected anointed one of God who brings God's rule, God's kingdom to bear upon the earth. And if that's John's purpose, his overall purpose, then it makes sense that our sermon text today serves that same end which it does. But what kind of Messiah is Jesus? He's certainly not the type that Israel is expecting. This Messiah dies in shame, naked, on a Roman cross. Which begs the question then, why did these terrible things happen to God's Messiah? Did God fall asleep at the switch? Is, is Jesus a, a, a hapless martyr? caught up in the ill winds of fate? Point C, no. The events recorded in John 18 to 19 fulfill Old Testament scripture and thus fall within God's sovereign control. And if we miss this, we miss everything. As in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, it's the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that form the climax of the whole book. But John has his own way of handling these events. John's account of the arrest emphasizes Jesus' complete mastery of the situation. Everything that happens to Jesus in these chapters is in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. God is in sovereign control of everything. 
Beloved, here, supremely, we see the eternal salvation purposes of God worked out. And here, supremely, is the glory of Jesus Christ displayed. All right, with that undergirding everything, let's jump into the text. What happens first? Look at point number one. Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested. Verse 1, we read, When he had finished praying, that is, when Jesus had finished praying his upper room prayer in chapter 17, and New City looked at this prayer only last week, Mount Pleasant, so we may have you at a disadvantage, uh, but what has Jesus just prayed? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So after praying that, Jesus leaves with his disciples and he crosses the Kidron Valley because the answer to Jesus' prayer is in his death. And our Lord goes out now to meet it. Make no mistake, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, what must happen if he's to give eternal life to all those the Father has given to him. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side of the Kidron, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And this is the famous olive grove uh, that Matthew and Mark call Gethsemane, which means oil press. Verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This, was, this place was a favorite resort for Jesus. We read in Luke 21, 37, that during Passion Week, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. So Jesus would camp here. He would sleep under the stars in Gethsemane. And in the Gethsemane scene of Luke 22, 39, we read, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him which also makes this garden the ideal venue for Judas Iscariot to do his dirty work. The time at night and its location away from the city, removed from crowds that could become angry mobs, meant Judas could bring the arresting officers right up to Jesus. And that's what happens in verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Now, up to this point in the chapter, John has been presenting us with bare facts. He's been setting the scene, uh, but with, the, with verse 4, the apostle brings in one of the major theological themes of his gospel. <clears throat> 
a theme that New City has seen multiple times over the course of our sermon series, and which we'll see played out again and again in chapter 18 and chapter 19 in the weeks to come. All four Gospels present Jesus as knowing. He knows what's going to happen to him. Uh, there are multiple predictions of his death in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, think of our, our Lord's agonized praying in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. He knows what's in store. Or Matthew 26, 53. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He knows what's in store. But this theme is especially strong in John's Gospel. Jesus has already said back in chapter 10, verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Beloved, Jesus offers up his life in obedience to his Father, not as a pathetic martyr buffeted by the ill winds of cruel fate. And so in full knowledge of what's about to befall him, Jesus goes out of the Olive Garden to meet his betrayer, the soldiers and the priests. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just say, look at the courage here. Uh, Jesus knows he's been betrayed. Uh, he knows they've come for him. He knows that cruelty and scorn and agony and death loom large before him. What does he do? He steps forward to confront the darkness that will put to death the light of the world. And this must have been a most unexpected move on Jesus' part. The soldiers had come out secretly to arrest a fleeing peasant, but in the gloom, they find themselves confronted by a commanding figure who, far from running away, comes out to meet them. And I think what happens next is some of them experience a sudden wave of terror as they're faced with actually laying their hands on one whose supernatural powers are already legend. Some of them step back. They stumble in the darkness. Again, he asked them, verse 7, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. But before he's taken away, Jesus ensures that his followers are not harmed. He says, If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. What he said back in chapter 17, verse 12, I have not lost one of those you gave me. And John is a very subtle writer. I think his mind is working on two levels here. Jesus safeguards his own followers from the conditions that threaten them at this moment in the garden as a kind of acted parable of how he saves and preserves his followers in every dimension. The disciples' physical safety at this moment is a parable of their spiritual safety. Their physical safety here is an illustration or a symbol of their eternal salvation. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Verse 10, 
Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And folks, you can bet your bottom dollar the apostle Peter missed. He was not aiming for this man's ear at all. He was aiming for his neck. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. And, and if I had symbols up here right now, I'd be crashing them like crazy. This is the Mount Everest of the text, right here. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? There's so much more going on here than John telling us Peter's a real impetuous hothead. Do you see how Jesus frames this? Peter's bravery is a denial of the work to which Jesus has sanctified himself in chapter 17. Point C is really coming to the fore. These events fulfill Old Testament scripture and thus fall within God's sovereign control. Yes, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his inner circle and arrested by the religious authorities, even though he's innocent of any wrongdoing. But at the same time, over all this evil and all this wickedness and betrayal and persecution, we see the sovereign will of God in action. It's God's will. It's his design. It's his purpose to crush his own son for the sins of his people. And that's been God's will from eternity past. And Jesus knows it. He's told his disciples this on multiple occasions, and he's come to do his Father's will. He's come to Jerusalem to die. He's told them everything Jesus does throughout his earthly ministry, and, and never more so than during these last moments before the cross, is in conscious obedience to the will of his Heavenly Father. But true to his Jewish heritage, Peter recoils at the thought of a suffering Messiah, which is why Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Because in trying to avert Jesus from suffering, Peter, in a way that he cannot know, is opposing a great mystery of God. Peter's action is a denial of the work to which Jesus has consecrated himself. Now, I have no doubt that if in this moment Jesus had raised his voice and yelled, a la Mel Gibson in Braveheart, they'll never take our freedom, then the disciples would have been emboldened to die in a blaze of glory right there in the garden. I'm sure that would have happened. Uh, but instead, at the very moment when blood and riot is in the air, Jesus confronts the apostles with God's perfect will, even though at this point they don't understand it. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The leader in whom they've placed their hope has actually come to the capital city to be humiliated and killed for the sins of his people. That's God's will. Not, not reign on David's royal throne and pomp and splendor. This Messiah reigns from a cross. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with this commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. 
And interestingly, only John mentions this preliminary interrogation or trial before Annas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make no mention of it. But the way that the text reads is kind of confusing. Jesus, just follow along here. Jesus is brought before Annas, who is distinguished from Caiaphas, the high priest that year. The high priest in verse 19, now is this Annas, is this Caiaphas, then questions Jesus. Then Jesus is struck in verse 22 for how he answers the high priest before Annas sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, in verse 24. That's very confusing. What in the world's going on here? Uh, are, there, are there two high priests? Because Moses said very clearly the high priest is appointed for life. Actually, yes, there are two high priests. Annas, a Sadducee, high priests were always Sadducees, he was high priest from AD 6 until AD 15, when Valerius Gratus, Pontius Pilate's predecessor, deposed him. So Rome interfered in his appointment. They deposed him. But Annas continued to hold enormous influence because many Jews, obviously, they resented uh, the deposition and appointment of high priests by a foreign power. That wasn't their right to do that. So Annas was still considered to be the real high priest by a lot of Israelites, even though Caiaphas was the high priest in the mind of the occupying Romans. And actually, Luke preserves that same tension. Uh, he dates John the Baptist's ministry by saying in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 2, that it was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So, it's not surprising that Jesus is first taken to Annas. To some extent, he's the power behind Caiaphas, which means the high priest who questions Jesus in verse 19 is Annas. Caiaphas doesn't take his turn until after verse 24. Now, Joseph Caiaphas was appointed high priest in AD 18, again by Rome, and he remained in office until AD 36. Actually, he and Pontius Pilate were sacked by Rome at the, in the same year. Uh, but look at John's reminder in verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. And that, of course, harkens back to chapter 11 in the context of the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus' greatest miracle. Just turn with me there for a minute. John eleven forty seven. John eleven forty seven. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. He just raised this guy from the dead. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And if people start thinking Jesus is the Messiah, then the Romans just aren't going to stand idly by. That's not just a, a religious opinion, right? The, the Romans aren't stupid. They know the political hope, the militaristic hope of the Jewish, that the Jewish Messiah represents to the people of Israel. And there is only one king, Caesar. So if Jesus gains a political following, the Sanhedrin will lose its power, the temple will be crushed, and their money and their privilege are going to be taken away. Which means these religious leaders, these shepherds of Israel, they're not concerned with what's right or with what's just 
or with the sign Jesus has just performed in Lazarus' resurrection, they're concerned with what's expedient. What will keep our place in society? Never mind God glorifying himself to the glorification of his son Jesus. Verse 49, Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied. That is, God was working through him so that he was speaking better than he knew at this moment. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. But certainly, obviously, not in the sense that Caiaphas meant. Caiaphas is thinking, put this fellow to death and the nation will be saved. It's either the nation or Jesus. What we need here is a substitutionary death. Caiaphas was giving his hardened, calloused opinion, but he spoke better than he knew. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one, Jews and Gentiles. So from that day on, they plotted, they resolved to take his life, verse 53. The advice of the high priest is accepted at this point. Jesus must die. The decision has now been made. It remains only to carry it out as efficiently as, it, as it's compatible with political expediency. And in chapter 18, with the help of Judas Iscariot, it all comes together. But in short, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. That's not the point. He's to be tried because he's already been found guilty. Jesus' death notice was written on this day back in chapter 11, and Caiaphas signed the death warrant. Matthew 26, 57 tells us that the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, sought false witnesses against Jesus at the trial. They were looking for false witnesses to kill him. And when Jesus refused to reply to those false accusations, Caiaphas, the high priest, put him under oath to tell whether he was indeed the Messiah. And when Jesus said yes, and he applied to himself the language of Daniel 7.13, Caiaphas ripped his clothing and declared that Jesus had uttered blasphemy. The Sanhedrin passed judgment that he was guilty of death and delivered Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Do you know what a, an ossuary is? It's a Jewish burial box. It's a bone box. Uh, during the time of Jesus, Jewish burial custom included primary burial caves where the meat rotted off the bones, followed by a secondary burial of the defleshed bones in an ossuary. It's a stone or wooden chest. It's about, it's about that big. Uh, and placed in smaller niches of the burial caves. In 2002, I saw the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit when it came to Montreal. And part of the exhibit was the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest, one of the main conspirators in Jesus' death. 
Seeing that 2,000-year-old ossuary was a profound experience. Jesus, my Lord, was raised in an eternal resurrection body three days after Caiaphas killed him. Jesus reigns. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by his Father. But Caiaphas is in hell. His dead bones are nothing but dust in a stone box, a mere archaeological curiosity that I paid 20 bucks to look at behind glass. That man played his part in God's eternal design. The Son of Man must suffer. And Judas played his part. Pontius Pilate played his part. You play your part. And I play mine. God is sovereign. Human beings are responsible. We come now to Peter's first denial of Jesus. But first, we need to hear Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. This was uttered just hours before. Turn back to chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus says in the upper room, My children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And now, chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. And traditionally, this other disciple is thought to have been the Apostle John. And that's certainly possible. Uh, John's habit in his gospel is not to mention himself by name, and he writes here of another disciple, this disciple. That could be John. It's not a hill I'd want to die on, though. Um, John's a peasant fisherman, which would place him, you would think anyway, as far removed from the aristocratic high priestly family as a Jew could possibly get. Uh, So perhaps... This other disciple, perhaps, is Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea. Whoever he was, it could have been John, but whoever he was, he was not only able to walk into the high priest's private courtyard without being questioned, he was also able to speak to the servant girl attending the gate and ensure that Peter was admitted as well. Verse 17. Aren't you one of this man's disciples too? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Denial number one. And as he said it, 
Peter probably never even thought of what he had just said as being a denial of his Lord. I mean, this is just a way to get into the courtyard, but it's denial number one to a servant girl. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself, because if it was a cold night, it would look suspicious if he was off in the corner by himself. Meanwhile, verse 19, the high priest, Annas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This is serious business. What were the crowds shouting back in chapter 12 when Jesus entered Jerusalem the week before? Blessed is the king of Israel. And given his worldly political expectations of what Jesus seeks, Annas probably wants to know what kind of force Jesus has gathered, what kind of instructions he's given to them. Uh, is, is there an organized army, Jesus, of your followers they, who think you're the king of Israel, a chain of command with regimental divisions? What are the instructions concerning how to move and when? Verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. The heart of what he preached was always in the public arena. Countless thousands had heard him. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testifies to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? If Jesus' response was illegal or inappropriate, then appropriate contempt of court charges should have been filed against him. Testify as to what is wrong, he says. But if Jesus spoke the truth, then why the assault? Why was he slapped? So do you see what's happening? Jesus' opponents are already unmasked as those who, unable to win their case by fair means, are perfectly happy to resort to foul. Jim Hamilton writes this, Annas has tried to elicit incriminating evidence from Jesus, but has failed. His henchmen have treated Jesus as a criminal who disrespects authority, and Jesus has rebuked them with moral authority. His efforts fruitless, his justice challenged, Annas can only bundle Jesus off to Caiaphas. Verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Because if Jesus is to stand before Pontius Pilate, the legal accusation must be brought by the reigning high priest in his capacity as chairman of the Sanhedrin. And the religious authorities very much want to bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate because Pilate holds the keys of capital punishment. The Sanhedrin does not have the legal authority to kill Jesus. Rome does. Finally, Peter's second and third denials. And of course, by interweaving the questionings of Peter and Jesus in chapter 18, John contrasts how Jesus denies nothing and Peter denies everything. Verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? 
he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Why does Peter deny Jesus? For physical safety? To prolong his life? To maintain his freedom from incarceration? To protect his family? <clears throat> Whatever the reason, he denied the Lord and then lived the rest of his life with this story being told over and over and over again, even down to this day, long after his death. But just imagine, just imagine the bold profession Peter could have made. It didn't have to be like this. Peter could have said, yes, I'm with Jesus. This man is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. I've seen his glory on the mountaintop when he was transfigured before my very eyes. I've seen his divine mastery over nature. I've seen him raise the dead to life. And this same man, Jesus, has foretold this very hour. He's already told me that he will be killed and give his life as a ransom for many, and that on the third day, he will rise from the death. Uh, uh, he also told me that one day, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's told me this. And, and he will send his angels to gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. I'm with this man. You want to believe it. I'm with Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. I'm one of his followers. Do with me as you will. Peter could have said all of that. But beloved, aren't we glad on a certain level that Peter utterly disgraced himself? that he denied knowing Jesus, even, perhaps, calling down curses on Jesus' head. The Greek text allows for that construction in Mark's account. It's in everyday matters that disciples of Jesus Christ bear witness, and it's in everyday matters that we fail. Yes, we can learn a lot from Jesus about standing up to persecution, and making a good confession. But perhaps it's the vivid portrait of Peter's abject failure that teaches us best. Peter was the most prominent of the disciples, but he was still a sinner in need of God's grace. Peter thought he would die for Jesus, but what he really needed was Jesus to die for him. And of course, Peter disowning his master is not the end of this apostle's story. Jesus restores Peter in John 21, the last chapter of the book. And Peter goes on to boldly preach the good news of Jesus Christ all over the world. And eventually, his faith in Jesus does cost him his life. In God's sovereign providence, Peter's bold pronouncement in the upper room comes true. 
I will lay down my life for you. Later accounts of Peter being crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified as his Lord was, that's debatable. But what is undisputed is that the indelible shame Peter bore for his public disowning of Jesus Christ on the night that he was sentenced to death was forgiven by the Lord himself and subsequently overwhelmed by the apostle's fruitful ministry and his martyrdom. The Christian, let me ask you, have you ever sinned as a believer real bad? I mean, you totally blew it. And now, maybe your marriage is hanging by a thread. Or maybe you've said something to someone that you should never have said out loud. Or maybe you were caught doing something that drags the name of Jesus Christ, your Savior, through the mud. Something that fills you with shame. Something that's shown you like nothing else that there are mountains, there are oceans of remaining corruption in your heart. And if a sinner like you is saved on the basis of anything but God's grace, his unmerited favor, you are without hope. Christian, have you ever sinned so bad and you felt so terrible that in a denial of the grace of the gospel, and the love of your Heavenly Father. You didn't feel like you could raise your eyes towards heaven even and pray for forgiveness. Have you ever sinned so bad, Christian, that Satan tricked you into not reading your Bible or praying or gathering with the church because you weren't worthy and holy enough to partake in such holy pursuits. And so you tried resorting to some good works to get yourself back into the Father's favor, his love, some gospel-denying act of self-righteousness. What does Jesus want from us in those moments? What does he want us to remember? How does he approach us? Never, ever forget the Apostle Peter's reinstatement in John 21. Go home and read that account this afternoon. If Peter could be restored after ultimately denying his Lord and, and maybe even cursing him, then there is hope for others here today who might be guilty of the same or even worse. Jesus' blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for Peter, it availed for me, it will avail for you. Amen. Let's pray. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever.
And this is the word that was preached to you. Amen.